I'm Joe Devine and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. A slightly extended intro today, apologies for that, but I'll only take a couple of minutes of your time. Uh, Firstly, I'd like to say very exciting news that our transition is complete, uh, or it will be in a few hours depending on when you're listening to this podcast. So uh, on Monday the 20th of November uh, at 9am GMT, I believe is uh, the launch time. TifoFootball.com will go live, finally. So after months uh, and uh, increasingly uh, work-heavy recent weeks, uh, we're finally launching. TifoFootball.com will be the the new home for UMAXIT Football the Game, for all of our articles. There's a whole bunch of new things on the site. There's a... um, a category which I'm particularly excited about, which is called the Focus Features section, uh, where we take the opportunity to be slightly more in-depth about things and we chapter particular stories. So there's a Focus Feature on the history of the World Cup, which was made up of some of the videos we released last summer. There's one on the Billionaires Club, where we work with James Montague on profiling some of the game's richest owners. There's Gunshots and Goalposts, where we spoke... Uh, to Benjamin recently about the history of Northern Irish football uh, and there's a few others on there as well. Added to that there is three new features every day. Uh, There's a video every day, there's a podcast once a week, there's loads of stuff on the site and we've put loads and loads of time and effort uh, into the design function of it as well. We think it looks beautiful basically. So I'd love it if uh, you have a moment to go over and have a look. And it's also, it looks great on, on a mobile as well, so even if you're on your phone, on public transport, uh, listening to the podcast, have a little look. Please do, thank you very much. And also, um, I'm sure there'll be some problems with it. There's there's always bugs when we open uh, when people open new sites and stuff, so if you do notice anything that's strange or you have any feedback, please let us know as well in the comments of this video, or you can send us emails uh, on Twitter. We're very responsive, that sort of thing. So that would be fantastic. Uh, but yeah, that's finally out of the way. Everything now is TIFO. UMAXIT Football, the app, is still available and can be accessed uh, through TIFOFootball.com. And if you've downloaded the app and you play the game regularly anyway, uh, you can still use the same app. Just in case people don't know what I'm talking about there, UMAXIT Football, the app, is a free-to-play Premier League predictor game which runs for the majority of, of the Premier League weekends where you can win up to £2,000. It's a split depending on how many people win, but all you do is predict the outcome of five fixtures, so whether it's a win or a loss for a team or a draw. If you get all five right, uh, depending on how many other people win, you get a share of £2,000, and it's totally free to play. Uh, So you can go and download that as well. And it's fortuitous that I'm talking about that now, listeners, uh, because also, to mention is that for the next three game weeks, uh, the UMAXIT football game is sponsored by Canvasist.com. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about Canvasist now. In effect, they're also sponsoring the podcast. Uh, and it's pretty exciting because they, I think they relate quite well to, to what we do. So Canvasist.com, they provide one of the largest collections of uh, football canvases and artwork for your home. Relive one of the best moments of your team or your favourite player every day through our high-quality canvases right up on your wall. I'm reading from a script, as you can tell. I'll stop doing that now, but I'll tell you a few other bits about them. They do also do canvases and artwork that isn't related uh, to football, so, you know, space, TV shows, movies, stuff like that. Um, And a little interesting snippet about the history of canvases is that they've now shipped over 5,000 canvases to fans from all over the world, 
and a cool thing is that they provide free worldwide shipping on every order, which is pretty good because generally that can be quite expensive on big items. Um, so canvasist.com, they're sponsoring the game week for the, for the next three weeks. They're sponsoring the podcast. Please go and check them out. Have a look on the website and pick something up. It is Christmas after all, right? That's nearly four and a half minutes. Sorry, it's a very long intro, uh, but I hope you can say... Hope you can tell we're excited about uh, the launch. So, please go check it out, tifofootball.com. Today I spoke to Alex Stewart about Burnley. Should have done that bit at the beginning, but it's all fine. Uh, Everything's fine. Enjoy the show. So later on this week, uh, we are releasing a new Tactics Explained video, Alex, which you've written about Sean Dyche and in particular what he does with Burnley's centre-backs. And at the minute, the regular pairing seems to be Ben Mee and James Tarkovsky. Um, so there's a few interesting things about about uh, those centre-backs and about Burnley as a team, that they've engineered the most blocks, uh, that they sit pretty high up uh, in the table for goals conceded uh, which I believe at at this moment is nine it might be more after the weekend but as it stands it's nine I think United have the least with five but they're right up there with the top teams um, despite the fact that uh, they're obviously facing a lot more shots on their goal so Sean Dyche and the centre-backs and Jack Cork as well uh, in central midfield obviously doing something really well um, and I think it was really worth exploring so I'd like to talk about that a little bit more um, in this podcast because it's it's uh, it's ground that we don't often venture into. Sometimes we can find it a bit difficult, I think, to discuss uh, defensive tactics in, in a really detailed way because often a lot of it is very intuitive, a lot of it is very system based, and and sort of um, well obvious in a, in a way. But in this case, you think that Sean Dyche is doing something where he's sort of funneling uh, opposition shots. So would you, we talk about that a bit in the video, but would you explain that again for people listening? Yeah, so I think the first thing to say is you're right. It's it's always a lot clearer um, seeing what teams are doing in attack Um, because I think there tends to be a greater degree of variance in attacking play. A lot of that will be down to the skill sets that individual players bring um, and coaches, I think, effectively playing to those strengths. And, you know, if you've got a, a couple of wide players who are really good at cutting in, then that'll obviously be a feature. And you can add to that overlapping fullbacks. You can add to that a striker that drops off, so on and is, so is forth. It, but sorry to interrupt, but is it presumably as well because it doesn't have to work every time? Whereas if you're defending, you pretty much have to have a super high strike rate, right? Yes. I No, I think that's, that's very true. And, and for that reason, I think coaches... Coaches will tend, I I would suggest, to be much more systems oriented in in terms of their defensive play. I think also just from a kind of an aesthetic point of view, people are generally more interested in attacking play. And there's also almost a pejorative um, sense that, you know, occasionally teams like Atletico Madrid transcend this under Simeone, but where defensive tactics are less interesting. 
And also, I think in the cases of, um, of of Madrid, and also you could say Leicester a couple of seasons ago, part of the reason for that is because there's an obvious attacking element to their side. There's Antoine Griezmann, there's Jamie Vardy, yeah. there's speed on the counter-attack. It's exhilarating to watch. But often I think with you know the difference between people, particularly from a, a perspective of uh, observing the game, uh, and I do this when I when I go to football, and maybe you're slightly different. But when I go to football, I watch the ball <laughs> because I don't, I don't know what's going on, and I feel like if I if I stop looking at the ball, I'll miss something. So I, I watch the ball, which means that pretty much all the time I'm watching the attacking play. Yeah, I, I think that's a, again a very reasonable point, and it, it is an, an interesting question, perhaps a more philosophical one for another day. You know, how do we watch football, and and why do we watch it? So. Maybe we should not watch the ball. Maybe we. Well, I mean, I, uh, as as you imply, I, I kind of probably tend to to spend more time looking at, at the arrangements of players. The kind of the say defensive posture might be a way of of putting it. Um, and I think that that depends. You know, if I'm if I'm watching a Champions League game or if I've gone up the road to watch Hendon, I'll I'll do the same thing um, because that's the way that I tend to enjoy watching football so Burnley I think it, it's something that I I looked at a little bit last season in the context of of Tom Heaton and and his excellent performance and this is kind of a way of um, I suppose a way of looking at, at how we come across the things that we then write about you know sometimes uh, you know we have obviously our our viewer recommendations and sometimes that they can be really helpful um but other times i might be looking at something from a stats point of view and think okay you know tom heaton is a very good goalkeeper i know he's out injured and nick pope's come in and played really well um which in itself kind of suggests something too um you know he had this massive number of shots massive number of saves and I thought well, you know it'd be interesting to look at, at those saves that he was making and, and to look at the saves that Pope's been making you know are they significantly better than most of the other goalkeepers in the league or is something happening here and we know that Sean Dyche is a very defensively minded coach um well, do we know that actually we can infer that from the way he's worked with Burnley he's not really had the opportunity at a team with greater attacking prowess. So it would be really interesting to see what he would do if he went somewhere else. But it's very clear that at Burnley, he's created a defensive system, which actually in some ways doesn't doesn't look too dissimilar to some of the things that Simeone does at Atletico Madrid. You know, there's, there's two really quite narrow banks of four um, in, in the kind of what we call the low block so effectively once you're defending closest to your penalty area um he likes there to be very little width between those two lines of four um he will allow a player from the midfield two to push out and it's less a press and more a closing down um it's it's interesting i think when when you when you hear talk of pressing sometimes you might you might watch a what's supposedly a press and think well actually they're just they're just running on to where they think the path of the ball is going to be for a shot and I I, I would say that's closing down rather than pressing so can we can we say then that, that that pressing requires a team effort and it multiple uh multiple closings down to be happening systematically yes I, th- I think that's absolutely right so I think in 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 the different types of pressing and obviously we have done a video on this before you want 
you want a man to be going towards the ball or the player with the ball, but but the other players need to either then be moving towards uh, other opposition players who might be an outlet for a pass or moving towards the passing channels. Or you have two or three guys all going for the man with the ball. So there's a kind of a concertedness to pressing. If you if you played for Rhinus Michaels IX. Then it would be like six or seven of you right. all herring towards it. <laughs> Just running around in a circle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, following Niskins. Um, Wasn't total football great? Uh, yeah, it's fantastic. It wouldn't work at Burnley. So, mm. so Burnley's structure is very, very clear. Uh, and they obviously work extremely hard on having a very strong, compact defensive shape. Um, but what is then interesting is how particularly the centre-backs, position themselves. So Burnley are good at, if you drop off, then obviously you're ceding possession, uh, sorry, ceding territory, right? So the opposition can get increasingly close to your goal. But for a start, we've seen in a number of our videos where we've looked at shooting positions, we've seen that once you're shooting from outside the box, then the the likelihood of scoring a goal kind of drops off a shelf. Um, that that by far and away the best place to shoot obviously is closest to the goal. So if Burnley can create two solid lines of four and give up territory up to about the edge of their penalty area, they're still not risking a massive amount because that area in front of the box, yes, it can be dangerous in terms of. Um, if you pass the ball around a lot in that area, then you can tempt the opposition to break their defensive position. But Burnley are so structured and so organised that they very rarely get sucked into doing that. So in fact, what you're basically creating is a kind of a roadblock and and the, the opposition can pass to and fro in front of that, or they can choose to shoot, but we've seen that, that shooting from there is ineffective. Um, and it doesn't really do very much. You know, they've got lots of the ball, which is one of the reasons why Burnley have such low possession figures. But if there's no penetration, if there's no ability to break those lines, then it doesn't really matter a great deal. Um, then what they like to try and do, as, as, as we talk about in the video, is arrange the centre-backs almost as kind of pillars to shield parts of the goal. And you'll see this when they're shooting from in, in when the opposition is shooting from sort of the top D, but also once they get into the box itself, if they're shooting from an angle, there's always an effort on on the part, particularly of the centre backs, although if it's a wider shot you will see the fullback doing this sometimes. Um to basically frame the goal so that it, it channels that you know, either you shoot and it hits the blocking player Mm, or you shoot or enter through the legs or something. Yeah, I mean that that can happen, yes. Um or just into their body or whatever. Or you're effectively shooting down the throat of the goalkeeper. And and what was noticeable when I looked at Tom Heaton's saves last season um is just how many times Tom Heaton makes a save basically by catching it <laughs> in his stomach or in front of his face. It's the luckiest goalkeeper going. Right. And you look at it and you think, you know, there has that this is the result of really, really good coaching. Because there's no way that 
that people when they get to Burnley suddenly forget how to shoot wide. Yeah, although right? that's an accident every time, yeah. Exactly. You know, that when when something keeps repeating after a while you have to look at that and 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 assume that it's the result of some sort of deliberate effect on the part of the defensive side. There's quite an incredible level uh, of of positional awareness going on there and I imagine uh, that the, you know the uh, the only way that that can work, I, I'm sure, is is for me and Tarkowski to be looking at where the ball and the attacker is and p- placing where they stand based on that. Because one of the other things we talked about, and we we've spoken about this before with a low block of this kind, is that the easiest ways for the attackers to to play is to go sort of over it and you know, knock a cross in for a header or try and play it around it wide, you know. And uh, so I would have thought that would mean that if the ball moved wide and looked like it was going to come in for a cross, uh, those two centre-backs would need to be in a different position than if it looked like there was going to be a shot from straight on. So I imagine it's the game for them. I'm just trying to get into their head when they're playing and I'm assuming it would be Right, he's there. I need to be here. He's there now. I need to move yeah. here. And they and they've made a significant number of headed clearances as well, um, which shows um, exactly the same that 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 you know what what you're saying is correct. Teams also try and get around it by pushing the ball wide and and crossing it in. Um, and the Burnley wide players do work very hard to. to try and double up where possible with the the Burnley fullback to to prevent crosses but again i think they're almost from from the eye and it would be really interesting to to ask Sean Dyche about this but from the eye it looks like they are more concerned with keeping their defensive shape than aggressively closing down i think there's a confidence that they have that if they keep their shape and the ball's crossed in their players will be able to deal with that. Well, that's, and that's a great confidence to have, you know, and yeah. particularly if the wide players aren't so concerned that a cross coming in could result in a goal, they're much more likely to be level-headed about what about their decision-making. Yes, and I think it also gives the, the goalkeeper, who effectively is the organiser of this area, a lot more confidence uh, in terms of when they come to claim crosses or when they don't. And... That that confidence as well means that everybody basically knows their job. Have you noticed that as well? Then let's talk about the goalkeeper. So uh, Tom Heaton before Nick Pope now. Yeah. Have you noticed that the uh, they are organising the centre backs? Are they are they vocal within that team? Yes. Yes, I'd say absolutely they are. And um, uh, what's really interesting is that Pope through Heaton's injury and Tarkovsky through. Uh, Keen being sold to Everton are both effectively new in that team. Um, Pope came from Charlton, um, and Tarkovsky is a Tarkovsky is a really interesting signing actually because he was he was bought from Brentford, um, and he was really highly regarded at Brentford. And I actually saw him play there a couple of times um, because I I used to go to Brentford games when I lived down in Southwest London, uh, and he's. He's actually a very good passer of the ball. He's quite an elegant centre-back. Um, and, I mean, obviously defensively solid, but but at, at Brentford he had a, a lot of room to, to either carry the ball forwards or to make quite kind of long counter-attacking passes um, and seemed to do that really well. So when he moved to Burnley, I was a bit surprised because Burnley are kind of, you know, they're a bit more workmanlike and no disrespect to them in that regard. But... 
those two players have fitted really quite seamlessly in. And it's interesting that Tarkovsky barely got a look in last season because the Keane and me partnership was so strong uh, and so well developed that why would you bring another centre back into that? And he kind of patiently waited for his chance. And he's also the youngest player that Burnley are fielding at the moment. Um, he's 24 um, and Burnley haven't given game time to anybody younger so far this season. <laughs> um, so, you know, he's 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 done really, really well to, to come in, fill Keane's shoes and and slot into this incredibly organised, systematic way of, of defending, which is a way of defending that really helps whoever the goalkeeper coming in is. I mean, you know, Pope has played well. Uh, I don't think there's any doubt about that, but he's he's moving into a system that seems designed almost to afford the goalkeeper as much protection as possible. Um, so it's, you know, it's interesting to see that while they might have been lacking some of Heaton's experience and organisation in the first instance, that, that the system is so well coached by Deich that it's not really made a great deal of difference once you bring in a couple of new players that those, you know, the rest of the group is able to transition those players in and work really well anyway. Yeah. Well, let's talk about personnel then, because I remember a, a previous video um, that, that that you wrote the script for discussing the uh, statistical difference between Ben Mee and Michael Keane at the end of last season. Um, and it wasn't particularly significant. And in some cases, uh, Ben Mee actually looked like the better player. Um, so we were, you know, uh, questioning whether Everton had purchased the right man. Obviously, Michael Keane is much younger, and um, I suppose his illustrious Manchester United background uh, could account for for part of the aura around him. Um, but uh, do you think Ben Mee is uh, is likely to be poached at the end of the season again? Are, are other teams going to notice uh, that, that he's doing very well in this system? Or are they going to think that the system in particular is what suits him and that's not going to suit their club? Possibly. Um, I, I think it's more likely that Tarkovsky would be subject to bids rather than me, partly because of his age and partly because he is a more capable ball player, which is actually why I think Keane was bought rather than me uh, by Everton, was was probably that he's a bit better uh, at passing. And particularly if you're looking at moving towards a, a three at the back as teams were probably mostly thinking about or many of the teams were thinking about in the summer and acquiring players on that basis you do want center halves that are able to pass the ball you, um, you want your ferdinand i mean any team would want a ferdinand wouldn't they um that's probably true because he he really is one of the the best english defenders ever he did it all alex didn't he he was he was remarkable, wasn't he? I mean, let's be honest. I, I kind of it, it's sometimes easy to, and again, this this kind of feeds into what we were talking about at the beginning of this podcast, where you know, if you were asked to remember footballing moments of the last five or ten years, you'd you probably mostly remember attacking moments. That it's a lot easier to think of. Um, a great goal or uh, a great free kick or something like that. Um, and there, I'm not saying that, that we undervalue defensive players on that basis, because I think if you said to people, you know, 
the top 10 Premier League players of the last 10 years, most people would probably have Ferdinand in there and they, they might have Vidic as well, for example. I don't know if they would. The top 10 players, unless they were told to choose players from each position, I'm not sure that they would. Well, that's, that's, I, I that's think maybe that would be true. wrong. Um, but I think in that, in that instance, then they would be wrong if they didn't pick him. And, well, and interestingly, though, because... what, you're, what you're saying now is actually what Alan Hansen once said about the uh, 2000 and... I think it was the 2008 season. Uh, Paul Ansorge wrote a the script for a video which went out last week about the history of Rio Ferdinand's career. And at Manchester United, there's one particular season. I think it was 2008. They, they won the league and they won the Champions League. Um, and Alan Hansen said of Rio Ferdinand uh, that obviously the plaudits are going to Cristiano Ronaldo, but the one player who's been the most consistent, the most solid, and played nearly every game of this year. Uh, is, is Rio Ferdinand, and, and for, for him, he was the best. So you're, you're essentially mirroring Alan Hansen. <laughs> he's, he's gone. Maybe you are the sort of reincarnated Hansen in, in, pundit, uh, in pundit land. Possibly grumpy and of Scottish ancestry. Um, With a scarred forehead. Yeah. Do I? Gives, gives you real edge. I, I, yeah. I, I, have, I have a number of scars, but I don't think any are on my forehead. They're all inside, aren't they, Alex? That's right. Yes, after after recording. <laughs> anyway, listen. One more question. Go on. Uh, before the end of the podcast, because I want to know about uh, exporting this uh, this Daesh system, the Daeshian system, onto another team. So, mm. what, what are the negatives, right? Because let's say, for example, uh, it seems to work really, really well. Um, I don't really want to use Manchester United as an example because that they incidentally have conceded less. But let's let's take a big team for example and say why don't they play like this? What are the what are the are the are the are the, are the pullbacks? Is it simply because you're ceding so much possession that you're not going to be able to score as many goals? Or yeah, partly that. Um, I think it does tend to generate quite defensive football, um, and like you say, at its best, that can be you know, the exhilarating counter-attacking of Antoine Griezmann. But when you've got Sam Vokes up front, it's not quite as jazzy. Um, so if you just pull back into a low block, let's, let's say when, when you have the ball, you're a completely different team. You try to keep, you try to keep possession. You try to play it, you know, play incisive passes. But once you lose the ball, let's say in the middle part of the pitch, you do a little bit of pressing. And when they enter your half, you just drop into a low block. Well, that's that's what Atletico Madrid do, but it it requires, I think, for it to athleticism. Certainly, it requires athleticism um, because you need a huge amount of energy to transition one to the other repeatedly. Um, I think that it requires players who I don't want to say don't have an ego, but it requires players. Team prepared to buy into yes, and if you look at that, um, if you look at that Burnley squad, there's nobody in there now who you would say is a, a massive ego. There's nobody there who you immediately think, oh, they're going to put themselves not necessarily above the interests of the team, but they're not going to flounce if if this is what's required of them. They'll they'll knuckle down and do the job. And I think it's interesting that. There's about, oh, I don't know, I can't remember. It's somewhere between three and five Republic of Ireland internationals in that Burnley squad, um, including Ward and Brady and Hendrick, who are all starters. And the, the, the same sort of ethos. I mean, I know Ireland got eviscerated by Denmark 
uh, in that playoff. <laughs> but yeah. generally speaking, prior to that point, Ireland had played very similarly. Um, and it was it was about sort of sacrificing the individual for the team and being incredibly organized and being incredibly defensive. And there is no surprise to me at all that that there's kind of an overlap there because the, the systems, the styles were quite similar. I think if you try to import that to, that style into, a, a, I want to say, a better team, that might be really harsh, but a, a more celebrated team. I think for a start, you'd have players that weren't used to being that systematic and that organised in that way. I think you would have fans that would find it really boring. Um, I think you'd have players who would want a greater degree of expression or creativity. And in spite of all of that, I think it's still a very good idea. Um, and you look at how Atletico Madrid have used a similar system. They're not exactly the same by any stretch, but they are similar. Um, and that was, I think, in part designed because of, of Simeone's mentality, but also because for a team like Atletico Madrid, which is still very good and still has some really good individual players, but for them to be able to compete against the attacking talent of Barcelona and Real Madrid particularly, but also some really great teams in there as well, like... Sevilla, Valencia when they're on song, Villarreal, you know, but these are all quite attacking teams. They had to come up with a way of being defensively super solid and then hitting those teams on the break. And it and it kind of worked and, and they could sell that to the, the players because it was the way of of countering that. And I think the Well the it bigger also makes teams, so much sense. I think the bigger teams in England, they they don't need to do that. If if you look at where the big teams, the big attacking teams in England struggle, Man City aside, because they just don't struggle, um, it's it's in breaking down teams like Burnley. It's in breaking down the teams that, that so they don't they don't have to come up with a new defensive tactic particularly because you know it's it's what they're doing is already working by and large. Yeah, well, that's what I, that's what I was going to touch on just then, actually, because I think um, that 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 the sort of culture of that has has grown at some of the bigger teams, where these mid mid table uh, or lower half of the table teams who are going to set up defensively come and visit the big stadiums uh, for for the match day, and then either it's a it's you know it's a draw or there's a sort of a win which is regarded as snatched, or even if the bigger club win, there seems to be a, like a lot of uh, rhetoric about uh, how the the club just came and, and 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 sort of parked the bus and weren't interested in playing football and and all of this what I think is nonsense because if if Burnley went to Arsenal and tried to play Arsenal like Arsenal play they would lose <laughs> they would lose the game of football mm. you know to 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 suggest that there is only one way of playing and that if you do it in a way that makes it more difficult for the bigger teams to beat you that you're somehow playing anti-football, I think is horrifically arrogant and one of the things about football that I hate the most. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I can only really agree with that. I, I, I think I think there's a... Obviously, a lot of people watch football for entertainment and there is probably a sense that if you're turning up to do that and to, to nullify the opposition and to defend and try and nick one on the counter that that what you're doing is somehow antithetical to the sense of football as enjoyable entertainment. 
Although interestingly, let's let's say hypothetically that that Burnley do that to Arsenal, they snatch a a one nil away win and go home. The entertainment provided is to the thousands of football fans travelling home from their games, listening to the radio and hearing that Arsenal have lost <laughs> and Burnley. I mean, that, there's there's a good thirty seconds there of oh that's funny, yeah, that's great, well done. No, you know, it's only when it happens to your team. So really. It's just a minority that aren't interested or, or, or aren't enjoying it, and that's the minority of the supporters of the team who have lost. Yes, I know. I know exactly what you're saying, and I, I, I understand. But why but I think that infuses intolerable. Uh, yeah, no, sure. But I think that infuses the way that that football's reported on that that somehow that football it, it's this incredibly weird schism between uh, you know if you're a fan you're saying okay well my my club has a duty to entertain me by playing a certain style of football, but my club also has a duty to win and to be successful. And sometimes, depending on who you are and what resources you have available to you, those two premises cannot be fulfilled. Only one of them can. If you're Man City, yes, you can be entertained and you can win. And that's really lovely. And I'm very happy for all Man City fans. But if you're a Burnley fan, wanting free-flowing, invigorating, attractive, attacking football, then you're not going to be successful. If you're a Burnley fan who wants to see their team scrap and do well and establish themselves in the Premier League for a long period of time, which is what they're doing, then you're well satisfied. But I think the the media sometimes, you know, they look at, you've got, you know, a nil-nil draw is always going to be lost on match of the day. Uh, and there's a sense that, that football is about goals, it's about excitement. And that is true to a degree, but that doesn't mean that we should in any way be disrespectful of the teams who, through brilliant strategy, brilliant coaching, intelligent recruitment, like Burnley have established themselves by doing something very different. And it's interesting, that notion, isn't it, that that football is entirely about entertainment? Because I think that's true now. I think that is true. But it would be interesting to sort of take a sociological approach and look at the, the history of, uh, of football and of uh, the fandom of football and think about what it was important for in the past. Because I think, you know, one of the things that is constantly discussed in... Um, in sort of football zeitgeist is the idea that footballers and and teams need to be good role models for kids right there's always been there's always been that that notion that exists um and also uh, a, a, a very large uh, group of people who watch football are kids you know in a way it's it's for children right? <laughs> it's like a sort of culture of people going to watch superhero films which is again fine i, don't, I you know hmm. i don't have any problem with it i'm just saying in a way it's for kids right uh, and so I'm sure if, if you imagine the difference of 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 a of a, of a kid who supports Burnley uh, going to going to Burnley uh, and seeing, as we've discussed, the incredible level of teamwork as that that scrapping that is that is described as as scrapping by by the media and by people who, as as we've said, sort of have a problem with with or would describe that as anti football is called scrapping. Really, uh, it's incredible defensive solidity. It's it's taking, you know, or being super accurate with any any chance that you can get on goal, even though you know that there aren't going to be many of them. So that really, it's just super efficiency. Uh, and there's if if we if we're going to try and convert those into uh, morals or lessons for people to learn from, I think Burnley are a, a fantastic example 
or much better reflection of uh, what is, you know, universally seen to be sort of good and positive things in life, you know, as opposed to uh, uh, being at a club where it seems to be about totally about winning and losing and about an entertainment value. And if if the club has lost, it's a disaster. You know, I think I think there's there's some benefit um, to supporting a football team. You don't win every week because yeah. you know you don't get you don't get used to this this uh, this idea, and it's not it's not such an awful thing. Um, yeah, there's when, a, when the team lose, it's a lot more balanced, isn't it? And and you know, yeah. I, I think if you look at you look at role models, then <clears throat> is is there a case to say that Jack Cork is a better role model for kids than Cristiano Ronaldo? And and I think I think we're saying yes. Well, I do love Cristiano Ronaldo's hair, though. Yeah, but I I love. I mean, I one of my great regrets is, or one of my great regrets. Is it, is it one of your? Is it one of your great regrets? <laughs> Not one of my great regrets. A thing about which I am sad to a greater degree than you might expect is that Jack Cork never really established himself at Southampton. Right. Yeah. Because um, I, that, I love always it. I'd love it if that was him. one of your great regrets <laughs> in life. Yeah. yeah on exactly. your deathbed. I just, I just wish Jack Cork had established it. A, a midfield mm. pairing of Jack Cork and Geordie Classy should have been so good. Mm. It just mm. never came to pass. Well, you know what, Alex? In your head, it always can be good. That's the mm. wonder of imagination. So, kids, uh, because football is for kids, I assume there's only children listening. I feel a bit bad about saying that. I didn't mean to insult anyone. Football's for everyone, obviously, but mainly for kids. Um, Alex, thanks so much for joining us. I'm sure we'll speak to you again soon. I'm sure you will. Take care.